Well, good morning, church. Here we are a week after Easter, and hopefully you had a great day of celebrating with your family last week, reflecting on the triumph and the victory of Jesus. I know we did at our house. It was a joyful morning. It was filled with the assurance and the power of Jesus. But I have to wonder, what was it like for that first generation of disciples? You know, there were some for whom the day started and it quickly turned from sorrow to joy. You know, Mary Magdalene, she had the incredible privilege of being the first to meet the resurrected Jesus. But so did Salome and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and Peter and John. He ran to the tomb and when he saw the empty burial clothes, he believed. And so his grieving turned to hope and expectation. And today in the church, every Easter for us starts with joy. It starts with expectation. We wake up in anticipation and excitement to celebrate with the rest of the church. But for most of the disciples, after Good Friday, it was still a day of sadness. The man they put their hopes in was crucified and buried. The time they spent with him, following him and listening to him, now seemed like a waste. Their expectations were unfulfilled and they were disheartened and disappointed. And many of them cowered in fear. They were hiding. Maybe we're next. Is the Jewish authority coming after us? And some of them decided to get out of town. You know, we're going to read about two of these disciples today. In Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13, we read about two disciples who were traveling on Easter, probably in the afternoon, to a small town outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus. Now we're going to look at their encounter with Jesus and how it gave them hope and how from their experience we can learn and grow as gospel people who are a people of hope. You know, Paul said in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are a people who have hope and a people who spread hope because we're overflowing with it. And my hope is that this will be a timely message for the church today. You know, given the current state of affairs in our country, even the world, there's a lot of fear and worry and anxiety. It's in times like these that the church has the greatest opportunity to point to the source of all our hope. So that's what we're talking about today, that the gospel people are a people of hope. And to get us started, our own Olivia Clark, our Director of Family and Children's Ministries, is going to take us through our passage today as we read it together. So here's Olivia. From the Gospel of Luke, chapters 24, verses 13 to 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned and crucified him. 
but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was now, now known to them in the breaking of the bread. Thanks, Olivia. So we see these two disciples go from fear and disappointment to hope and expectation. Through their experience with Jesus that Easter afternoon and evening, their entire world was changed. Their entire perspective was changed. They now have something they didn't have before. They have the resurrection of Jesus from the grave in victory over sin and death. And this is so important. It's the resurrection of Jesus that gives us ultimate and lasting hope. And without it, we have no hope. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And then in verse 17, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, right? And then verses 18 and 19, he says, then those who have fallen asleep or died already in Christ, then they've perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we're a people most to be pitied. That's what Paul says. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope. You know, in 1 Peter says, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we just sang about that today, didn't we? Our hope is in a living hope because Jesus was raised from death to life. And so we are raised from death to life. It's a lasting and unfailing hope, as Peter goes on to say, kept in heaven for you, meaning it's an eternal hope. The resurrection of Jesus, the victory of Jesus is the greatest source of hope and security and assurance available anywhere. Because if God can accomplish that, then he can accomplish anything. And there are three big ideas I want to communicate today from this narrative in Luke. Three lessons about hope that I believe the church needs to grab onto today because, well, honestly, we need it. 
And our world needs it. Our world needs hope. And sometimes we Christians are not very good at exuding hope, at communicating hope, at overflowing with hope. You know, we cower away in our hidden upper rooms, or we run away, or we let cynicism seep into the church. But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus commands us, he says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, the greatest proof of God's faithfulness is the life and testimony of those who follow Jesus. Every single one of us has more than enough life to share and more than enough light to shed. God has proven to be faithful to every single one of us. And he's given us stories of miracles and breakthroughs. He's given us hope and assurance. And part of our calling is to be a people of hope. And so how? Well, the first lesson in this passage is to make sure we're putting our hope in the right thing. Let's put our hope in the right thing. You know, Jesus had to correct these two disciples in a number of ways. But first, let's look at where they were going. Away. They were walking away from Jerusalem, away from the rest of the disciples, away from the community of faith that they've been part of for years. And really, who could blame them? Imagine how they would have felt. They followed Jesus, maybe even from the beginning, for three years. And now as they walk on the road to Emmaus, leaving Jerusalem behind, they're replaying everything that just happened over the last few days. And as they talk, the tragedy of what they just experienced was becoming more and more real. And cynicism sets into their hearts. You know, God didn't show up. And they, they heard Jesus cry out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And so they were walking away from it all. But you know, something I think is beautiful that I just, I just want to mention here is that even as these two disciples were walking away, Jesus came and walked with them. I mean, what a powerful picture of Jesus walking with the discouraged and the cynical as they're walking away from him. I think that reveals just a little bit of Jesus' heart, you know? Well, let's look at where these two disciples were placing their hope. Verse 21 says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So what kind of Messiah were they hoping for? You see, since the time of Moses, the people of Israel had been anticipating the Messiah. Those hopes became even more real when their nation fell subject to one foreign power after another, the latest of which, all of, as we all know, was the Roman Empire. But let's take a brief journey back in history about 350 years earlier. You see, the Greeks under Alexander the Great expanded their empire. And in 332 BC, Israel finally uh, gave in. They finally capitulated to Greek control. And this was the state of things for almost 170 years until one Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes made one attempt after another to force the Jews to adopt a more Greek culture and lifestyle. You see, up to that point, they'd settled for Greek control, but they'd been pretty resistant to its cultural influence outside of its language. But the breaking point for the Jews was when Antiochus tried to have a pig sacrificed on the altar in the Holy of Holies, which would have been unspeakable to the Jews, unspeakable blasphemy. So fortunately, the Jewish priest Mattathias prevented that from happening, and a full-blown rebellion was then launched against the Greeks. Now, Mattathias, he was killed, but his son, 
You may have heard of this guy. His name was Judas or Judah Maccabeus or Judah the Hammer. He took over in leading the, the rebellion, Judah the Hammer. He led many battles and was very successful. And there was one battle in particular where he and his army routed and decimated a much larger Greek army. And it was the turning point in the rebellion. And by some scholars, they considered this battle to be among the top 50 most pivotal battles in history because that's what really ultimately led to Jewish independence for almost the next 100 years until the Romans invaded. In fact, there's a Jewish holiday attached to this rebellion. It's called Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah specifically celebrates the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem, but that followed the success of the Maccabean revolt. And so their leader, Judah Maccabeus, he was, he was a strong leader. One could say that he was powerful in deed and word. He restored the Israelites to their land, given in covenant to them by God. He crushed the enemy, he set the captives free, and he cleansed and rededicated the temple. Does all this sound familiar? Now, just try to put yourself in this context. You're a young Jewish man or woman. All you've ever known at this point in history is occupation by the Romans. But there are these stories of this great leader and a great revolution against a more powerful force but God was on our side then, and so he'll be on our side now. And along comes this new teacher. His name is Jesus. And he's saying things like the kingdom of God is at hand, that, that he has come to set the captives free, that he came to fulfill God's promises to his people. He's teaching and preaching with authority. He's performing signs and wonders, and he's mighty in deed and word. And then he invites people to follow him. Imagine what's going through their minds and hearts. The hope ignited from his teaching and power, watching as his following grew into the hundreds, even the thousands. And then this new leader goes to the capital, Jerusalem, to usher in the kingdom of God. I mean, the anticipation must have been unbearable for Jews who'd been waiting for a political, military savior or messiah. And so their hopes and dreams and beliefs were centered entirely on this man, Jesus. And then everything falls apart. He's betrayed by a friend. He's arrested. He goes on trial. He's convicted. He's beaten and mocked and ridiculed. And he, and he doesn't fight back. He doesn't walk through the streets of Jerusalem leading a revolution. Instead, he's marched through the streets of Jerusalem carrying a cross. And then he's nailed to that cross on a, hill, on a hill overlooking the city that he failed to save. So now can you imagine what was going through the minds and hearts of these two disciples as they headed to Emmaus? On the way, they encountered a stranger who drew them into a conversation. And they said, he was a mighty prophet indeed and word before God and all the people. But the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You know, that phrase, but we had hoped, is for many of us the reason we decide to take the road to Emmaus. We're told the Christian life is supposed to be easy that God exists to meet our expectations, to conform to our will, to act in the ways that we think are best. But then it doesn't work out like that. And then maybe you've, you've become discouraged and cynical. Maybe your marriage is hurting, 
or your career has been disappointing or you've lost a loved one. Maybe you're single and desperately lonely. Or maybe you have children who are far from God or you're battling a major illness. You're on your own road to Emmaus because you've lost hope or you're almost there. You know, these two disciples were headed to Emmaus. But why Emmaus? Why that small town? Why leave the company and comfort of their friends, their community of faith? You know, they lost hope and were walking away from it. But why Emmaus specifically? Well, do you remember that great victory that Judas Maccabeus won over the Greek army? The battle that was the turning point in Jewish independence? That victory happened in the village of Emmaus. So is it possible that these disciples, they left Jerusalem where they had lost their hope, and then they went to Emmaus to find hope because that's the last place that God showed up. That's the last place that God powerfully moved. And don't we do that today? You know, when we've been beaten down by life, we think we've been let down by God. Instead of holding on to God, instead of holding on to his promises, we so easily turn and put our hope in something else. You know, and usually that's something from the past. You know, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing to count our blessings and survey the evidence of our lives, how God has moved, because that's our testimony. But here's the thing. When our current experience when our current experience of life and faith is solely propped up on our past victories and our past experiences, we can often fail to see how God is moving now, providing now, giving us hope now, a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus, even in the midst of our current sufferings. You know, these two disciples, they they had their hope in the wrong things. Their expectations and therefore their hope was in some false idea of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. They never fully understood Jesus' words when it came to his identity and mission. And that really takes us into the the second lesson in this passion, in this passage. If the first lesson is to make sure we're putting our hope in the right thing, the second lesson is that our experience of hope begins with the scriptures. Our experience of hope begins with the scriptures. Let's look at the passage again, starting in verse 25. He said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know, these disciples came to Jesus with a preconceived idea of who Jesus, the Messiah, was supposed to be. Now, we really can't fault them for that given their cultural background and the history of the nation. But Jesus shows them kindness and patience even as they were walking away from their hope in him to explain the truth and correct their misunderstanding. And he does that from Scripture. He does that from Scripture. You know, if we want to know the real Jesus, we have to seek him in his word. We may not have the benefit these disciples had of being in his actual physical presence, but we do have a benefit they did not. The New Testament scriptures inspired by God to tell his story and to reveal his heart and his purpose. But Jesus explains about himself from the Old Testament. 
pressing for us the point today that the Old Testament is alive and active and relevant and powerful for us today too, because it all points forward to Jesus and tells of his suffering and his glory. This is part of Luke's strategy in writing his gospel. He often argues from prophecy. It's even more common in the book of Matthew, but Luke often alludes to the Old Testament to authenticate Jesus' identity and the truth of the gospel message. And so when this passage says that Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets and he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, it it makes you wonder, what did Jesus actually explain? What did that conversation look like? I mean, they were walking for miles. They had plenty of time. Well, we don't know for sure, but maybe Jesus, maybe he pointed to the dozens of Old Testament prophecies that he fulfilled. Dozens and dozens of them. Um, Like he would be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from the tribe of Judah. He would be a descendant of King David. He would spend a season of his life in Egypt, preceded by, he would be preceded by a messenger like John the Baptist. He would be rejected by his own people. He would teach in parables. He'd be betrayed for silver, and that silver would be used to purchase a field. He was falsely accused, silent before his accusers, spat upon, beaten, executed alongside criminals, buried with the rich, given vinegar to drink. His hands and feet and side would be pierced, but his bones would not be broken, and he would also pray for his enemies. That's just a sampling. All of this is foretold in the Old Testament. It speaks to the nature and identity and sacrifice of the Messiah. Maybe that's what Jesus explained to these two disciples. And he explained it from the scriptures because the scriptures is where we find the truth and it's where we find hope. Or, and, maybe Jesus walked with them through some of the dozens and dozens of places in the Old Testament that confirm the kind of Messiah, the kind of Messiah they should expect. Maybe he explained to them how he's the promised one in Genesis who would bruise the serpent's head or the descendant of Abraham through whom all the nations would be blessed, that he's the substance of every Old Testament sacrifice commanded in the law of Moses, that he's the true deliverer and king, the one that all the judges and deliverers in Jewish history point forward to. Uh, Maybe he explained that he's the coming prophet greater than Moses, the ark of safety from God's judgment, the bronze serpent who is lifted up and looked upon for healing, the suffering servant of Isaiah, the scapegoat that took on the sins of others, the lamb that was slaughtered, the high priest to represent us before God. Maybe Jesus told him about all that. You see, these two disciples, they had only a partial understanding of the Messiah, of the Savior. You know, it's only partial faith to believe in a Messiah who only suffered or one who would only reign in glory. A complete faith and understanding sees the Messiah as one who encompassed both, as the Old Testament says. And knowing only what you want to know about Jesus instead of knowing all of who he is will always lead to disappointment. You know, some of us want to know about Jesus' love and mercy and patience, but we don't really want to know what he says about our sexuality or our money or pride and greed and self-interest. Some of us want to know about a Jesus who is a good man, who taught good things and stood for love and justice and compassion, 
But we don't want to know the Jesus who came to tell us that there's something terribly wrong with us and that we need his help. And often, where that lands us is on the road to Emmaus because we don't understand and believe in a Jesus that actually has something to say about every aspect of our lives. And so we don't listen and we don't follow his ways. We don't trust that what he said is true when it comes to living life according to God's best for us. We don't experience the abundant life that he has offered in following him as our shepherd leader. Instead, we wander off like lost sheep and we try to live on our own. And soon we find that that leads to disillusionment which leads to a loss of hope. But it's right there in God's word, who he is and who you were and who you are now in Christ. Do you want to know the abundant life that God has to offer in Jesus? Do you want to know Jesus for all he is? Do you want to live every day with hope and assurance? Then I'm gonna say this as plainly as I can. You gotta know your Bible. You have to be the kind of disciple who is in the word regularly, daily, reading, absorbing, wrestling with the truth, being molded and changed and guided, directed, corrected, encouraged, inspired, and comforted by the word. I mean, look at the effect the words of scripture had on these two disciples in verses 31 and 32. It says, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and then he vanished from their sight. And then they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? It was the opening up of the scriptures that made their hearts burn. It was the Bible that gave them excitement because it's in the Bible that tells the full truth about Jesus. No Christian book can do that for you. No podcast can do that for you. Your preacher can't do that for you. And all those things are great, but to get to know the Messiah for who he truly and fully is and the eternal living hope that only comes in Jesus requires above all of this being devoted to the regular practice of reading the Bible. Our hope begins with the scriptures. The third lesson in this passage is to give one another hope. To give one another hope. Let's look again at verses 33 through 35. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them and gathered together. And they said, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, has appeared to Peter. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You know, significant here is certainly the content of their message, their testimony to the rest of the disciples. The Lord has risen indeed. He appeared to us as we walked down the road. He explained everything to us. He helped us understand everything that just happened in the last few days. He showed it to us in the scripture and it all makes sense now. But also significant is their timing. Verse 33 says, they rose that same hour or within the hour, or some translations say at once. And the point is, they didn't waste any time. They hit the road. They had just walked seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, but they knew they just had to go back immediately. The news couldn't wait until tomorrow. They couldn't hold on to this great news, this good news for themselves. They had to get back and tell the others. 
They left Jerusalem earlier in the day after hearing the testimony of the women and Peter that they had seen Jesus, but they didn't believe them. They were skeptical and cynical and they abandoned their hope. But now they know, now they've seen Jesus. And so they knew they couldn't just let their brothers and sisters sit in their skepticism and their hopelessness and disbelief. They had to go take care of that, to remedy it. They had to tell them that they've just seen Jesus and they had to pull their brothers and sisters out of that. They had to help them step back onto this side of hope and joy. They had a strong sense of urgency, not only for the message of the good news, but specifically for their friends. And we need that urgency today. Certainly in our call to missional living, you know, outreach, evangelism, loving and serving our city, but also in our calling to one another. We need to give one another hope, not because we ourselves can provide it, but we call one another into hope in Jesus. We help each other turn to Jesus. We remind each other of the great victory of Jesus in the resurrection and how that power is still available to us today. And we remind each other of the inheritance we have and who we are now in Jesus, that we are new creations, adopted sons and daughters, a gospel people of greater dreams and abundant life, a people of grace, a people of hope. And we can do that for each other only if we are living in community together. If we're putting ourselves in relational contexts like small groups and prayer partnerships and serving on ministry teams, we can give one another hope. We can call one another into hope only if we're known by others, only if we're unified in the body of Christ. If we're open to deepening our friendships, we will also deepen our faith. You know, when people are, are hurting and discouraged or feeling ashamed or beat up by life, they need God to restore them so their hearts can burn again. You know, we become for each other a light against the cynicism and skepticism of our culture. Into the hurting world, Jesus has sent his disciples. And we have the living hope of the resurrected and glorified suffering servant. You know, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they invited Jesus in for dinner. And something amazing happened. Jesus revealed his true self to them as they were eating. You know, in many accounts, the disciples did not believe that Jesus had risen or, or didn't even recognize him when he appeared. It took hearing his voice or seeing him do something familiar. And in that intimate moment of eating together, when he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them, Jesus finally revealed himself to them. And he did this not as he taught them, but only after they sat down in fellowship with him. And it was truly in that moment, Jesus gave himself to them that their hope was restored. So ultimately, that's what changes the hearts of the cynical into hearts of hope, an encounter with Jesus. And do you know Jesus is still on that road? He's still seeking to come alongside the cynical, the skeptical, the hurting, and the hopeless. If that's you today, then our prayer is that you will let Jesus walk along with you. Our prayer is that you will invite him to sit down with you, that he will reveal himself to you, that he will restore your hope and revive your heart. Amen. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for the truth that we celebrated and remembered last Sunday, but we celebrate and remember that every Sunday, that our Savior Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, though he was not a sinner, taking on the sin of all sinners and paying that price, paying that debt, and then was resurrected in victory, victory over death, having defeated it, defeating death so that we would no longer be plagued by death. Hmm. Lord, so we call upon your name. We, we ask you, Lord, to remind us daily of this living hope we have in Jesus, the Messiah, the one who rose from the dead, the one who was victorious. And Lord, I pray for all of us today who are struggling to have hope, who are being beaten up by life, who are struggling in one way or another. Lord, I pray that you would step in by the power of your spirit, directly by your spirit to encourage them. But also, Lord, would you work through your church? Would you work through the word? Would you work through the church, Lord, to, uh, for us to encourage each other, to love one another, to pull one another back onto this side of hopelessness into a hope in the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, as we continue to worship, we pray that you would be glorified, honored, and magnified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.